Good morning, Idaho. Hope you're having a wonderful morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Welcome to the Local Yokel Idaho Podcast, where we talk about what is going on in the wonderful state of Idaho. Today, we'll be discussing how Idaho is leading the nation in two ways, spending and vaccine exemptions, how our senators are standing up to Hamas, a cool laser system for buildings, and even some more spicy news in the quickies. All that and more to come. Glad to have you here today. Please join me for the morning banter where I chat with you guys a little bit before we get into it. But I understand if you're short on time and prefer to skip the banter, you can use the timestamp that is down in the description to jump straight over to the stories. Thank you for all of you that stayed and joined us for the banter. It's definitely probably one of my funnest times of the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful week. I most certainly did, mainly because I got things done on time for the podcast for once. I know you guys don't all see the back end of what's going on and stuff, but this week was not a scramble. Ah, that is an amazing feeling. That's what it feels like when you have the script ready. But uh, speaking of wonderful things, this week's weather has been amazing here for November. I remember I was talking with my uh, coworker. He was telling me about how he was like looking through his phone for photos in this time last year. It was like he was out doing his doom buggy in the snow or whatever, which I was sitting there and it made me pause. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. It is towards the end of November. Usually it's really rainy and cold. And then we get to Thanksgiving and it, it's cold. Really cold. And it's, yeah, it's just not great weather. But thankfully this year, it's been really nice. This last week, I even did some hiking and we went over to the Crater's Rings, which we will be chatting about today. And that weather was just beautiful. But before we get too much further into the banter, I'm happy to say we have John on again today, co-hosting with me. I am back and better than ever, Tyler. Awesome. Hope It sounds like you're well for a week plus now. Yeah, I am actually healthy. It's kind of weird, and I'm okay with it. I think we all are. We all love being okay. I mean, I think that's the way the Lord wanted us to be. You would like to think so. <laughs> right? Well, well diseases. We'll, we'll say that's part of the fall. Okay, that, 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 that. We'll blame it on the snake. That had nothing to do with us. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're probably right on that, at least until we, yes. you know, manufacture our own diseases. Then that's on us. I mean, one could say we already did that with a certain pandemic. I mean, I wasn't necessarily referring to anything specific, (laughs) but yes, you are right, sir. (laughs) Depending on the sources you read and those that you believe, (laughs) COVID has its own mysterious background there, less so, depending on who you want to talk to. (laughs) That, That is true. But on the banter today, we have two sections. The first I want to discuss with you guys is about the trip that I kind of teased a little bit, and I'll kind of be teasing around here for the banter. The Crater Rings just south of Boise. First, first point I want to make on that, the craters, you can be standing right next to them, and you won't know that you're even there. And it's it's just, it's really cool, especially when you look down, you can see the patterns of the different ways that the grasses are growing in the bottom of it, but that that's its own thing. But... You can stand on kind of the top of the dome and you can see just from the just from that top of the dome, the freeway off to the distance where if you're driving the freeway and you know the exact spot to look, you will you can see the hump, the bare, just bare little hump of where the craters are over there. But I had never, ever noticed it, but they were really, really cool to go see. And the lady who did the field trip did a wonderful job of laying out and explaining it barring the wind and stuff. Thankfully, it wasn't too bad out there, which... Have you ever been over that way, John? 
I've not. I know. So my wife and kids went out there last summer. The kids had a great time looking at stuff and seeing things. Interesting. These are super close. You can do it in like a full day trip. You can just drive out because we, what did we leave? We left it. We met up at, what is it called? The Boise, like. It's that last kind of gas station there as you're leaving from Boise, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It almost looks like a German kind of architecture design that they have on it. We got there at 10, and then from there to the Crater Rings, I would say it was probably like mm, less than an hour. Like maybe. Interesting. Okay. 20, 45 minutes. So it's an easy day trip to go take with the family of the kids. The one exception, which I noted it here in uh, my notes for the script today, the road is a tad bit bumpy getting in. We drove in with the Sienna minivan, and it handled it fine. You just had to take it a little slow, and there were definitely <laughs> some rocks. And the guide uh, that was taking us, she told us, like, yeah, I came out here and looked for the nicest one because she had that full, I think it's like the Toyota Highlander or whatever. Ah, <laughs> uh, yep, yep, yep. And she's like, yeah, I checked them all out. This was, like, the easiest one so the most amount of people could make it in. That, that would be the only kind of restriction to be concerned. It was really cool. And one of the details she shared that was an interesting one is the, the idea of them being craters. It's a great term because when you sit there, they look like something you see from photos of the moon. But they are more called a caldera. Because if it was an impact point, usually when, when things hit, like if you take a rock and you throw it at the water, right? It For a brief moment, you can see that where a lot of other water splashes out of the way of where the rock goes. Same thing with kind of a meteorite impact when you see other places on Earth or on other celestial bodies. When a meteorite hits something, it usually there's a lot of ejection that comes from that site. Rather than if you look at the different, in this case, calderas is what they're called, there with the crater rings, the sides of them are very even. It's, as I said, you come up on, there's no slope leading up to it. You're just walking and all of a sudden you're like, uh-oh, I almost fell. But in case, fun thing to go do. Granted, I would definitely check that your car is in good running order to handle a couple bumps and also to be aware of the wind. Do not go out there on a very windy day or you might fly away. Now coming to the second half, the one I kind of teased a little earlier, John and I will be sharing what we are thankful for in celebration of Thanksgiving and to share a family tradition of mine for the holiday. Which, for those just tuning in to give a little bit of an update on this month, each episode of the podcast for November, we will be sharing something we are thankful for in our lives over the last year. And also, last chance before the final episode of the month, if any of you want to reach out and let me know what you are thankful for, I will read it here on the show, be it a recording or it can just be written. Either way, I will take it and we would love to share it on here because thankfulness is something that doesn't come naturally. It's something we have to kind of intentionally do. And with that in mind, this week, I want to share how thankful I am for how the Lord has provided for me and this podcast, even when I have no idea how he did that and is going to do it. I can definitely say as I've started this podcast and just in general going down this route of more entrepreneurial endeavors, how much the Lord has truly just amazed me where I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. I don't know if I got time for this. I don't know how this is all working, but somehow it's working and just praying to the Lord, please give me enough energy and trust in you that I don't go crazy because stress and concerns and just regularly repeating in my mind, God takes care of the sparrows, he will take care of me. God takes care of the sparrows, he will take care of me. <laughs> yeah, it's an important thing to remember, and and it's an easy thing to forget. In, in the same vein, so my brother-in-law has been 
in a kind of dead-end job for a minute, and he recently got a new job. They live here in town, and so it's it's very exciting to to see that happen. We just had them over, and we just finished celebrating. We had a nice little taco bar and drank some mixed drinks, and the kids had root beer floats, and it was fun. So we had a good time of celebrating provision with him. So that was cool. I have to admit, the minute you said that you guys had tacos for the celebration, which is a wonderful celebration food, I instantly thought that is a very John <laughs> thing for you guys to do. Because I remember we were chatting some Sunday or something, and you were like, oh, yeah, one of my favorite things for breakfast is to have a breakfast burrito. I was like, what? Burritos for breakfast? No, that that is for lunch. That is for dinner, not for breakfast. Nope. Now, burritos are absolutely for breakfast. Now, if you go to Texas, it's not burritos, it's tacos. If you're in New Mexico, it's burritos. And my goodness, nothing beats a good breakfast taco or burrito, but but man alive, breakfast burritos are great. You get your your nice hash browns, your you know, your cubed potatoes that have been cooked really well, and then a little bit of scrambled eggs, and then you put your meat on there and don't some, forget the bacon cheese i mean yeah bacon sausage ham or all of the above i uh, get some nice green chili on there and oh just <laughs> wonderful i don't miss a lot from leaving albuquerque but that i do miss i miss the the wonderful burritos you could get and there were any number of places where you could get them like Fast There's food everywhere. places, nice places. Yeah, everybody had breakfast burritos. McDonald's had breakfast burritos. And with that said, let's walk on over here to the news with our main stories for the week. With our first news story here, Idaho leads the nation in spending growth. This comes by KTVB7 by Justin Core. According to a recent report from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, Idaho is leading the nation in terms of annual spending growth. The report shows that personal consumption expenditure, or PCE, because we got to have an acronym for everything, baby, which measures everything people buy, rose by 11.8% from 2021 to 2022 in the state. This is a significant increase across the state, while Idahoans annual spending at over 43000 is still relatively low compared to other states. It is an upward trend. Stephen Peterson, Associated Clinical Professor of Economics at the University of Idaho, contributes this increase partly to inflation, but primarily to the state's rapid growing and diversifying economy. Quote, most of this is very good news, says Peterson. We have a rapidly growing population. Our economy is doing very well. It's diversifying, and we have a low unemployment rate, end quote. However, there is one significant issue that is hindering the state's economic progress, the cost of housing. Despite recent trends showing a plateau in home prices and a slight drop in rent, Housing costs remain high. Peterson explains that only a fraction of families can afford a median home price, which is limiting the number of job openings being filled in Idaho. Quote, 
Frankly, those unfilled positions are costing Idaho jobs, said Peterson. If your employees cannot find or afford rent and housing on your wage, they're not going to take your job, end quote. This housing issue could potentially lead to an economic stagnation and force Idahoans to leave the state. Peterson suggests that the new zoning codes, like the one recently passed in Boise, could help increase the housing stock and alleviate this problem. With that said, I did briefly do a little bit of research on that about the zoning codes that Peterson was referring to to give you guys kind of a little bit of extra context because I had extra time this week. I was on time. In them, they allow for a greater diversity of houses, so smaller footprint per home, but more of them. Also, a reducing of parking requirements in those new codes. So basically, it reduces the amount of parking required for new housing and stuff, which was a definite point of contention during the public testimony on that one. And then also lastly, creating mixed-use zoning. The new laws created mixed-use zoning along transit corridors in high-activity areas. There's also some other things in there, but for the sake of housing, I just focused on those main ones that were affected in the zoning things. This is definitely something I think we have all felt that, like, cool, I've got a job. This is great. Everyone's got a job. You know, there's jobs everywhere being posted most I know tons of friends are like, yeah, I got a job. I'm going there. That's awesome. But then everyone turns around and is like, well, I'm employed and I'm working well and like the pay's pretty great. But I, I, I on my own can't afford a, you know, $1,200 a month rent type of apartment or different things. And I have to be this close to town for this thing and for that job. And or people trying to buy their own home like, well, I'm getting paid enough to maybe pay for the rental, but then I'm not making enough to even buy a house. And so. It's definitely this weird quandary, or in my sake, thankfully I've been able to figure out ways to make it work, definitely being like, well, how do I actually grow? What type of jobs do I need to go after to actually be able to stay in Idaho? And sometimes the price tag to get those can be tricky to want to even stay in the state when there's so much more lucrative jobs outside of it. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum to be in where we have jobs and we have work to do. But the economy of the state is not necessarily keeping up with everything it needs to. Housing prices are growing faster than wages are increasing. And that seems to be in line with inflation right now, where inflation is exceeding the wage increases. And so I don't really know how you solve this problem, although solving other big problems would probably help. Yeah, I mean, here again, I, I will I will automatically defer to other people, but in my humble, small amount of wisdom that the Lord has given me, um, if I would have to guess, you know, there definitely are bigger things feeding into it. But overall, I would say just in the U.S., outside of Idaho, the U.S. dollar or whatever currency that we deal in in America, it needs to be stable for homes, for economies, and we're seeing the results of a not stable and very misused currency at the moment by the U.S. Treasury with the U.S. dollar. And we're seeing kind of some of the results with that with inflation. I would say you might have not seen this as much if people are like, hey, yeah, I use cash to transact. But if we were a society where we use like a two-stage currency where everyone transacts, you know, for peer-to-peer things in cash, but then everyone holds their assets within like gold or more physical things that are independent of inflation, then it probably wouldn't hurt people's bad because they're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting paid as much, but also all the money I just stockpiled. It hasn't depreciated at all, and any of the money I do get doesn't depreciate at all. 
So maybe that's a silver lining for those of us that if you do have a lot of money and you're sitting there and you're like, well, I can't do it. Well, maybe put those into assets that will outpace inflation is the best understanding that I understand in economics. They're again, not financial advice, but <laughs> that would probably be one of it. And then in Idaho, the biggest thing right now is as much as we might not like it, um, supply and demand, it's an age old thing. If prices are high, you just if you make more of the product, it will bring the costs down. And so as much as those people out there, and I am definitely, I understand, and I 100% sympathize with the camp that wants Idaho to stay this bastion of rural country traditional values, and I totally understand it, but you, by restricting or trying to prevent more housing going in, now we can discuss on how that houses goes in, but restricting it or preventing more housing from going in is only going to make the primary problem that Idaho has worse personally and my deduction so we can't stop we need to keep either we need to figure out how to cause less people to come here without (laughs) causing other problems or we need to increase the production so it either equals the amount of people coming or is greater so that we can see a decrease in the price for homes yeah yeah supply and demand isn't going anywhere so we do need to build more homes the problem with that is where are we building homes how are we building them? Are neighborhoods, are established neighborhoods okay with building new homes? This is the problem. This is one of the problems that has caused Californian cities to be as bad as they are when it comes to house prices is that they they won't build new homes or economically viable homes near neighborhoods with expensive homes because the expensive neighborhoods don't want to drive their property values down which I understand. But at the same time, when you get more people moving in who need lower, I I was stumbling over how to, how to word this, but houses that aren't expensive, affordable houses, things like apartments, affordable. Yeah. But the problem is when you say affordable housing, that starts that we get the government commentation of like affordable housing brought to you by the government or whatever. Right. So so ignoring what our government labels as, quote unquote, either low income or or affordable housing, just affordable housing, housing that you can buy. That's, you know, apartments are that way. Condos, townhomes, things like that or duplexes, quadplexes, you know, multifamily housing is, I think, a really good way to solve that problem. And it becomes higher density residential living, which is important. It's not what everybody desires and longs for, but it is affordable and you can live there and you can, you can house a lot of people in a small square footage, which is important when your population is growing. With that said, we'll move on to the other thing that Idaho is leading in. Idaho leads the nation in vaccine exemptions. This comes by KTVB7 by Hector Mendoza. A new report from the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, which we are all familiar with that acronym, 
reveals that an increasing number of parents in Idaho are choosing not to vaccinate their children. The report released on November 10th shows that Idaho leads the nation with a 12.1% exemption rate, significantly higher than next closest states, Oregon and Utah, which have rates of 8.2% and 8.1% respectively. This comes as Idaho is one of only 10 states in the U.S. with an exemption rate exceeding 5%. Dr. Michael Wheaton, a pediatrician at St. Alphonsus Regional Medical Center, highlighted the real-world implications of this trend, citing a recent measles outbreak in Idaho. Quote, just this year, measles came back to the state of Idaho from an individual who went to another country where there was an outbreak, Dr. Wheaton said. He was not vaccinated, and he came back, and we had 10 cases of measles, end quote. The CDC report indicates that exemption rates remained within the recommended 5% before the pandemic, but those numbers began to increase during and after the pandemic. While the report does not delve into the reasons for this increase, Dr. Wheaton suggests that this reflects a growing skepticism about medicine in general that was only exacerbated by the pandemic. Despite these challenges, some are making efforts to improve vaccination rates in Idaho. Quote, the state of Idaho is very unique because of our immunization rates. We've opened that program up to all children so that there are really no vaccine costs, said Dr. Wheaton. However, he also pointed out that one of the issues is that the ease with which parents in Idaho can obtain an exemption, not only for medical or religious reasons, but also for philosophical ones. Which, putting the spotlight on you, John, where do you stand on vaccinations? (laughs) In general or the the COVID uh, vaccine? Well, I'm pretty sure I know where you stand on the COVID vaccine, but we'll go with in general for this example. (laughs) So in general, I think vaccines can be a good idea when they do what they're designed to do. And we can see evidence of that kind of throughout history. Now, you also look at general trends and vaccines seem to always be introduced as the general trend for what the vaccine is trying to help eradicate is on its way down. So is it the vaccine that solves the problem or is the problem solving itself because the human body is amazing? I don't know. It's really hard to say. Now, having said that, there are some vaccines that do make sense. Getting a bunch of shots when you go to countries that have issues with with some diseases, that works. It makes sense. So I'm not against vaccines in general as a blanket statement. I'm not a, I don't know, anti-vaxxer. Having said that, I think that blindly accepting the whole gamut of vaccines just because that's what we're supposed to do, I think that is being naive and silly and not looking at all the data available. So I think that Idaho being a place where you can get an exemption easily is a good thing. Like I, I realize herd immunity, like the the one argument that I that I will seed against immunizing the entire population is for those people that can't get immunized because of their weak immune systems. Okay, we don't want those kids to get sick. Granted, I agree with that. But now you have to start looking at percentages of vaccine-related injuries and then people that aren't able to get vaccines and then get sick and die from, or get sick and not even die, but sick, get sick and then have uh, problems. 
because of that sickness that could have not happened because the whole population was immunized. So at that point, it starts being a numbers game. What's what's the worst outcome? And it seems to me that the worst outcome is demanding that someone inject something in their body because reasons. That seems to be a bad way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Usually in general, that that's a pretty good rule of thumb. I would argue that the the point which all this pivots on is the nature of the disease in question. So if it's a disease, like, for instance, if you have a disease where 95, 80% of the population can get that disease naturally and build natural immunity, which... I don't know any doctor. I've never read anything that tells me that natural immunity is worse than a vaccine immunity. Usually getting the disease itself and your body actually experiencing the real deal builds a way better immunity to that type of disease. And so if you're saying that a certain disease, you're like, yeah, for like 80, 90 percent of the population, they can get this thing. It's going to suck, but they'll have way better immunity than if we give them a shot and you don't have all the health risks that come with a human-made thing, then I'd be like, well, then don't vaccinate everyone. Leave that vaccine for that extra maybe 10% that are like, yeah, I can't get this at its full strength. I need it at a weaker strength. Well, then cool. And then if you have another disease that's like, all right, this actually, there's only like 10 to 20% of the population that can get this disease and actually live from it or not have problems from it. Well, I'm like, well, now you got maybe a little bit of a stronger argument for vaccine, more vaccines, more people having to take a vaccine because they can build that immunity. So if they do run into it, they won't. And then that 20% of people that couldn't handle it hopefully jumps up with that vaccine. Any case, we would love, I know for me, I think this is a awesome thing to see the 12.1% exemption rate here in Idaho that one, Idaho allows for that, that the state here in Idaho isn't cracking down and saying, well, yeah, you can do that, but we're going to try to stop you at every turn legally to do it. I'm glad to see that there is that number, that there are people and that that freedom is allowed and people are exercising it. As for the implications of what that is, I think that's on a case-by-case basis, but we would love to hear your thoughts on this. If you have differing opinions or similar opinions, love to hear it on Twitter or by email, but we'll move on to the next story here and not get too bogged down on this one. Now moving into a story that totally won't get anybody bogged down on and is completely calm, cool, and 100% monotone. Idaho Senator pushes for Hamas to be seen as a terrorist organization. This comes by KTVB7 by staff in a significant move. Over 30 U.S. senators, including Idaho's own Mike Crapo, have penned a letter to the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. The letter carries a weighted request to label Hamas as a terrorist organization and impose sanctions on it. The senator's letter is unambiguous in its comparison of Hamas to other notorious terrorist organizations. Quote, Recent events have demonstrated that Hamas's actions, tactics, and stated goals are in many ways indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other terrorist organizations the United Nations has sanctioned. End quote. The senators didn't stop at drawing parallels. They pointed out that the U.S. Department of Treasury has designated Hamas along with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the other popular front of the liberation of Palestine as foreign terrorist organizations since October 1997. These groups have also been listed as specially designated global terrorists since October of 2001. 
The senator's letters highlight the international consensus on this issue. Countries and international entities such as Australia, Canada, the European Union, Japan, Israel, the Organization of American States, Prague, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom have all designated Hamas as a terrorist organization. Switzerland is also actively exploring legal avenues to designate Hamas as a terrorist entity. This move by the senators, including our own Mike Crepo, underscores the gravity of the situation and the need for decisive action. How the United Nations will respond to this call for action remains to be seen. Which, as any of you that have been following the news, I think as we're recording this on a Friday night, unless something else happens, because I swear, every day some other riot or thing happens around the world on this topic, there was a huge pro-Palestine riot that happened outside the Democratic National Convention there in Washington, D.C., and it it got violent. On the flip side, there was also a very big protest, I guess you call it protest, yeah, or demonstration, maybe would be the correct word for it. That was happened there on the, it's called the National Mall, that area there that they have in front of Washington, D.C., right? Is that the name for it? They had a huge demonstration there. I think that was uh, 400,000. I might be off on that number. I know it had a four somewhere in there, and it was over 1,000. That that was a very big demonstration that occurred there, but some people were contrasting the different <laughs> ways that those both played out compared to the two, the type of violence and the type of rhetoric and drama that occurred with the pro-Palestine demonstration and then the pro-Israel demonstration that happened there at the Capitol. You can go look for those for yourself. This definitely is an issue that is escalating, but it is really great to see that Mike Crapo, which he doesn't make the news a ton. I mean, I try to follow what he's doing, but he, I can definitely tell, is not a social media person. The other two House members, they post a lot that we talked about before. But as for our congressman there, Mike Crapo, this is really cool to see and very encouraging. Yeah, I, I think my question would be, what what does it do for us to designate Hamas a terrorist organization. Because I, I agree that they probably are, and it seems like they should be. But I think my question is a little more deep than that. What does that designation allow us to do? I am not speaking as a 100% authoritative person on this, but words have meaning and definitions have meaning. And so in the first step with any of this in the U.S., I think it's good to define those definitions and those labels correctly. And this is, I think, a great step forward in that. Now, what will that result then be? I think that depends because there's other times where I think we've seen in American history where, you know, we've defined certain things saying, you know, uh, my brain is blanking it here, you know, that this country is its own independent sovereign nation. And then other times saying it is or isn't. But once we have a defined definition, then we can start making decisions on how we're to act. Also, I'd argue I could totally see where this is a bit of a political move by the uh, senators here to say, hey, if we designate Hamas as a terrorist organization, right, well, then those that are supporting it, those other representatives that are pushing for it, those that want to give funding to Hamas, if we have it designated as that, and that's what it is, then it gives us a lot more weight, a lot more of an argument to fight back against those people that are wanting to support or wanting to fight for the case of Hamas when we have this overwhelming support internationally by a 
international defining body of what the definition of it is, independent of what our definition is, because we could then say, hey, look, it's not just us, Mr. USA, that says they're terrorists. We're, we're also looking at the you know, United Nations or whatever else, and they're also saying it. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of consensus and weight to be brought on that. And that has pretty big political implications when you're trying to make arguments and debates. As for, you know, the question of how that would then cause action beyond the political, you know, trying to snipe your neighbor there and trying to advance your own ends. I'm not 100% sure my best guess, granted if John wants to pull up in perplexity over there and grab that and put this question in, because I have no doubt it can look at the bylaws real quick for me. If I had to guess, the one thing that it's probably going to do first off the bat is that it's going to start cutting a lot more funding avenues off for Hamas which then supports, shall we say, our uh, friends there, the Jews with their fight and different issues that are occurring. And also, I would argue, probably would bring Hamas more to the negotiating table if a ceasefire does come once that label has been put and those restrictions and the money flow gets cut a bit more. Sure. So here, I, I did exactly what you said, went to perplexity and put this in. So designating Hamas as a terrorist organization allows the U.S. to take several actions to combat terrorism and its financial support networks. So you're right there. So it plays a critical role in curtailing support for terrorist activities and pressuring such organizations. It allows the U.S. government to stigmatize and isolate the designated the designated organization internally to deter donations or contributions to and economic transactions with the organization. And then additionally, it alerts other governments to U.S. concerns about individual or individuals or entities aiding terrorism and promotes due diligence by such governments and private sector entities operating within their territories to avoid associations with terrorists. A lot of it seems to come down to financial and and cutting off the financial aid and support for the the terrorist organization that is Hamas. Right, right. Which is what I was guessing it was going to be, which I think is a pretty reasonable step to do according to the actions that they did recently. We'll put it that way. Right. That seems that seems reasonable to me. But it, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. As it said here at the bottom of my script and for the researching of it, still remains to be seen what the United Nations will do on this. I think the takeaway from this is I think this is a good step. Moving forward, I know those that might be pro-Hamas, I, I I have a doubt that people of that ilk would be listening to a show such as this for very long. <laughs> I, That's probably very true. I, I, I'm going out on a limb here. Maybe we're going to cut our audience in half. I got no idea. And I'm welcome to anyone joining us, but I have a feeling you're probably not going to be on long if you hold that position, but you're more than welcome. But also really glad to hear that Mike Crapo is doing some stuff. We don't also always kind of see his hand in things and what's going on as much as we do at the house lately. So it's really encouraging to see him taking some action and being involved in stuff like this. Now, moving back to the fun things and out of the hot explosive area that is the Middle East because it has a habit of being very hot, we come to Rexburg's new Winter Wonderland with ice skating and live music. This comes by the East Idaho News by Andrea Olson. A new ice skating rink with a live music venue named The Rink opened in Rexburg on Friday the 10th. The Teton View drive-in off Yellowstone Highway was transformed into a winter hub of family-friendly activities. 
Bowden Huffinger, the organizer of the rink and a student at Bingham Young University of Idaho, saw a need for more winter activities in Rexburg. Quote, the whole idea is just to have something to do during the wintertime because the big problem we have in Rexburg especially is there's nothing to do during the winter. Huffinger said the rink will offer a variety of activities, including food vendors, axe throwing, that's a fun thing if you haven't already done it, a Christmas light path, human foosball, a s'mores kit, which includes marshmallows, graham crackers, and chocolate comes with the price of the tickets. The ticket price also includes ice skates, so that's all kind of mashed in there together. The ice skating rink will initially feature synthetic ice, which is commonly used by hockey players for practice. Quote, it's synthetic ice, so it's not as good as normal ice, but typically it's what hockey players use, and they'll set it up in their garages, and they'll practice on it. Huffaker explained, however, plans are in place to create a separate ice skating rink with real ice once the weather gets cold enough to support it. In addition to a variety of activities, the rink will host live music on Fridays and Saturdays, with three bands playing daily, the rink officially opened on Friday, November 10th from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. and will be open on Saturdays, Mondays, and Thursdays. The venue can also be rented on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Sundays. Which, John, I maybe I'm making a leap of an assumption here, but I feel like I'm pretty safe to say I'm assuming you've done a lot of ice stuff being from the Midwest there and the love for ice fishing I hear occurs over there. <laughs> so recently, no, I haven't done, I haven't done any, any ice, uh, you know, anything on ice. Now, as a kid, though, I was on rollerblades and ice skates on a semi-regular basis growing up in Michigan. It was a thing that we just did. So yeah, this is kind of cool. This sounds great to me. Any, anywhere where you can, you can do ice skating more, I'm I'm 100% for. I think ice skating is an awesome activity. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be coming back more. Here again, my history nerd side of me, that you you, you read in a lot of older books about how often during the, the winter season that it was just something, here again, also with dancing in the past, where in our culture in America and Western culture, there was just a habit of, yeah, Christmas time or winter time or cold time came around and every town had these big rinks prepared for everyone. If there was a river, then there were people like trying to maintain it so that people could go out and use it. And it was just something like, oh, yeah, it's wintertime and you go out ice skating just, you know, the same way as during the summer. People are like, yeah, you go camping. And so it's really cool to kind of see that come back a bit more. I feel like for a bit it kind of died out and ice skating was something you did at like special venues and things. And you were the guys like, oh, you're an ice skater and you bought your own skates and stuff. I mean, we've seen that pop up with the Indian Creek Plaza that came in Caldwell, which has been a huge success, I have heard. It has just exploded. I can say I've been several times. I very much enjoy it. I know Boise, we talked about it, I think a month or two back, is looking to build their own similar thing that's like that. And then it sounds like over in Rexburg, this is kind of a little bit of a copy as well. But I think this is really cool things to do, especially with this one. They added even more than the Indian Creek Plaza. They're going to have axe throwing, which if you haven't done that, that's super fun. And also, if you haven't done ice skating before, and maybe you can kind of pitch in here, John, as well. Uh, if you've ever done like rollerblading, honestly, ice skating for me was actually easier than rollerblading. That if you understand the concepts that are being used with it, it, it actually isn't too hard. It just takes a little, little, a couple minutes with some muscle memory to build up to do it. And then you're off to the races. 
Yeah, no, it's it's very similar. And and the thing about rollerblading versus ice skating is that yeah, there's so much less resistance. It's so much easier. It's easier to start. It's easier to stop. Really, the the thing that you have to understand is how to balance. And and once you know how to do that, then man, it's really easy. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, when it came to learning the ice skating and rollerblading, for that matter, the ice skate, you can't, I guess you kind of kind of see it, but it's it's this like concave or half circle inside there. And so when you're skating, you're sliding on each side of that cave on each one of those blades and moving. But then if you want to move, you angle that skate off to the side and then you push off those blades. Here's the interesting thing when you look at so so you have two different types of skates. You have figure Ooh, skater skates and yeah, and then ice hockey skates. Ice hockey skates are just a blade. A single blade? Yeah, it's a single blade. Woo! That sounds a lot more difficult. Yeah, that's also why the guy in uh England died when he got cut by the blade in the neck. So that's also a thing. It's like a giant meat cleaver on the bottom of your foot. Just wow. Yeah, literally. So that's a that's an ice hockey skate, which does operate exactly how you're saying. It just cuts into the ice and you and you push off of it. Now, figure skater blades, they are that concave structure, but what's fascinating is it is you're not actually skating on ice, you're skating on water. Oh, that's right. I remember this now. Keep going. Right? So as the skate goes over the ice, the friction causes causes the ice to melt and then pool up in that concave area. And so you're actually floating on water. You're not skating on ice, which is awesome. It only took us... Science. A couple hundred years, but Lord Jesus, we can walk on water. That's right. <laughs> or I guess kind of glide. You don't really walk. Yeah, 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 we can glide. I mean, we, we figured out the <laughs> graceful way. See, Lord, we're imitating you in a graceful form. <laughs> but yes, if you're over in the Rexburg area, I think this is something you should definitely check out. It sounds like a very fun thing to do with the family. When I was writing for the article and trying to get all this stuff ready for the script, I didn't see any pricing per se. It might be a little pricey, but who knows? Well, and my hope would be that because they're not using ice, they're using this whatever ice compound that it won't have to cost quite so much because it's not as uh, difficult to maintain the surface. Yeah. But we'll move on to our next story here. Speaking of hot things that melt, Boise startup Flashpoint wins big with innovative construction approach. This comes by the Boise Dev by Ann Daly. A Boise startup Flashpoint Building Systems recently won a $50,000 at this year's Boise Entrepreneurial Week. The company is making waves in the construction industry by using laser technology to reduce the cost of home building and streamline the process. Flashpoint innovative approach involves laser engraving a combined set of architectural, mechanical, engineering, and plumbing plans onto a subfloor. This marked subfloor can then be followed by all members of the construction crew. Co-owner Pat Churchman explains, quote, wanted to create a tool that could be used by anyone, reduce confusion, reduce labor time, reduce material waste, and give all users visibility on what needs to be built and where it needs to be built, end quote. 
The laser creates a light indentation that won't rub off or wash off in heavy weather and a dark black line that is easily visible. As the laser marks the piece, it creates a charcoal resin, which seals the mark, making it waterproof. The company pairs this idea with CNC technology, which uses the same vector drawing format that plans are designed in, reducing the need for additional work. In the last 18 months, Flashpoint has completed over a hundred single-family homes and is currently working on a commercial hotel project. Co-owner Nick Stapello notes that the technology has been beneficial not only for construction crews, but also for designers. Quote, it has empowered designer professionals to know what they are drawing is actually going to get built, he said. The company's innovative approach has led to significant time savings. For the 100 projects they've completed, they've reduced the time frame duration from 16 days to just 6 to 8 days. Additionally, Flashpoint's technology has helped reduce the time it takes to redo projects. Churchman pointed out that the rework constitutes about 10% of all project costs, equating to over $20 billion in the U.S. alone, and represents a roughly 380,000 homes that end up in the landfill each year. Which, this just beautifully tied into what we were talking about earlier. I did not plan that, ladies and gentlemen, but I thank the Lord for it. It, it just did. But anywho, besides the beautiful transitions and interlocking here, I think this is a really cool idea. The idea of like, cool, we've got these lasers. We've already got this whole floor plant. We can kind of laser it all out. And then everyone knows what to do. Because when I've worked on projects and different things, half the battle, half the time is knowing what on earth you are doing. Where you have the different manager and you're like, where do you want this? How do you want this? Do you want to bulge out this way? Do you want to do it that way? Well, in this case, a lot of that's already solved. But I'm going to actually turn this more over to John because I know this is more of his area of expertise. Yeah. So. I worked in a, on a framing crew for a summer while I was in college, and that was definitely one of the biggest things was being able to translate the plans onto the slab. And so if you could have someone come in and in, I don't know, how long did you say it takes to, to laser engrave the slab? I, I don't think they said here, but I'm guessing real quick by the way they're saying this, it probably is only going to take a maybe an hour, if I'm guessing. Right. I assume it's I assume it's quick. That was a day long job for us to just mark out the slab. And that that was two of us. And I was uh, my job was just to stand there and hold the hold the one end of the thing right where my boss told me to. And then he would pull his 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 tape line down and we would snap lines. And I could see that becoming a problem because if he reads the plan wrong, if he goes a couple inches over here and there, if he, you know, if your laborer is a dumbass, then it just takes longer and creates problems and issues in the future. So, yeah, if you can laser engrave that that slab, pour a bunch of slabs, laser engrave them, and then get your framers working on them almost immediately, well, then you've just saved a bunch of time. And, and that's a good thing. Plus also the waterproof part they were saying here, because like when you're doing those lines, those are chalk, right? Yeah. I'm guessing, well, if it rains or whatever and you don't get the frame up, then it's already gone. Yeah. Rather than this, it doesn't matter if it rains. Yeah, because you're, you're etching into the, into the thing. So yeah, no, I, this sounds great to me. This, this sounds like the type of innovation that we need to be working on to move, to move construction forward, to be able to save money and time because those are things that are are highly necessary for us to do and like you said we were talking about that earlier with with housing we have got to be able to build more housing more quickly and as much as i hate to say it regulations aren't going anywhere so how do we build quicker 
with the constraints that we have, this right. seems like a good way to do it. That or I would argue be involved in your local city councils and uh, zoning and planning meetings because that will that'll that'll change regulations, I think, pretty, pretty quickly when I've seen how quickly city councils can pivot when a great deal of their populace is not happy with decisions they make because your voice is very powerful at your local your local level. Yeah, that is true. Being, being involved is is a very important thing. But anyways, super cool to see Idaho Boise startup anytime that Idaho has some cool things like this. I love to point it out. Hopefully it will help them as they're going through their development because any startup money is desperately needed and lacking at all times in a startup world. And hopefully this should help them. And it'll be cool to see how this affects the process here in the Treasure Valley. And hopefully it speeds things up. into our quickie section here for those that haven't uh, heard this whole spiel before the quickies are stories that i wanted to share with you guys but did make the cut to be full stories with full commentary and all the details and bells and whistles but i still think you need to know about and would like to know about our first one here is jerome county election faces judicial review this comes by ktvb7 by joe paris in jerome county the saying every vote counts is being put to the test in the valley school district's zone for trustee election which ended in a razor thin margin of 40 to 47. However, the Jerome County clerk discovered that two votes from the same household were mistakenly given absentee ballots for the trustee Zone 5, despite residing in Zone 4. These two votes could potentially alter the election's outcome. Idaho Secretary of State Phil McGrain is now working with the Jerome County and courts to apply a law passed in 2022 that allows for judicial review of election results. This law, which McGrain helped to pass, enables the clerk to represent the case to the court for review rather than requiring a candidate or a voter to contest the election. This is the first time the judicial review of an election is being used, McCrane said, quote, This will actually be the first test of going before a judge, sharing all the information, and allowing anybody who has been involved to see what took place. And then I think likely in this case, we may be headed towards doing a new election, end quote. The exact process for how this will play out is still being determined with considerations including the timing of two upcoming runoff elections on December 5th. McCrane acknowledged the challenges of recreating the election circumstances of the original election, but emphasized the importance of transparency and trust in the electoral process. Now, coming out of that hot situation into something kind of similarly hot, but sad at the same time, small modular reactor project in Idaho Falls terminated. This comes by the East Idaho News by Rhett Nelson. After eight years of planning and development, the Carbon Free Power Project, or CFPP, in Idaho Falls has been officially terminated. The project, which aimed to build 12 small modular nuclear reactors, MSMRs, for those that don't know that term, at the Idaho National Laboratory was the first of its kind in the United States and had been granted approval even by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The decision to terminate the project was made by Utah Associated Municipal Power System, a consortium of 50 power companies in the western United States, and New Scale Power, the developer of ASMR Technologies, UAMPS, cited rising costs and inability to secure enough contracts to sell the generated electricity 
as a reason for the termination. The CFPP was expected to generate enough electricity to power about 350,000 homes and would have been a significant source of energy for the region. However, the project's complexity and the relatively new technology of SMRs represented challenges that ultimately proved insurmountable. Despite the termination of the CFPP, Idaho Falls Power IFP remains committed to advanced nuclear technology and is exploring other projects with the Idaho National Laboratory. One of these projects involves placing new reactors on the peak generation plant, which is designed to generate clean energy during peak periods. While the CFPPS termination is a setback for the development of SMRs in the United States, it does not diminish the potential of this technology. SMRs offer a number of advantages over traditional nuclear reactors, including smaller size, modularity, and enhanced safety. As the technology continues to develop, SMRs are still sure to play a significant role in the future of renewable energy production. So staying over on the east side of the state, major drug bust in Idaho Falls. Six arrested, 10 pounds of meth seized. This comes by the East Idaho News by Andrea Olson. A significant drug bust in Idaho Falls has led to the arrest of six individuals following the discovery of 10 pounds of methamphetamine. The Idaho Falls Police Department was alerted by the Teton County Sheriff's Office about a large quantity of drugs being transported into Idaho Falls in a white Toyota Camry. Upon locating the Camry, law enforcement officers observed a blue BMW pull up next to it briefly before departing. Officers initiated a traffic stop on the BMW due to an obstructed license plate. A police canine, Mako, from the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office was brought in and indicated the presence of illegal substances in the vehicle. A search of the BMW revealed one pound of methamphetamine. Law enforcement then executed a search warrant at a house on Sage Avenue where they discovered an additional nine pounds of meth. Charges range from trafficking methamphetamine, providing false information to a police officer, possession of drug paraphernalia, and frequenting a place where controlled substances are used. The Idaho Falls Police Department expressed gratitude to their partners in the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office and the Teton County Sheriff's Office for their assistance in the investigation. So moving from meth to music, Jenny Oaks Baker returns to Idaho Falls with joy to the world. This comes by East Idaho News by Rhett Nelson. Acclaimed concert violinist Jenny Oaks Baker and her family are set to return to eastern Idaho to kick off the Christmas season with their show Joy to the World, a sacred celebration. The concert, which will also feature Irish soprano Alex Sharp and best-selling author Jason Wright, known for his book Christmas Jars, is scheduled for November 24th at the Frontier Center for the Performing Arts in Idaho Falls. And if you use the code JOY10 you'll get a 10% discount on tickets at checkout. This year marks the fourth time the show will be held at the Frontier Center, formerly known as the Idaho Falls Civic Center for the Performing Arts. Baker revealed that this year's performance will have a few changes, promising an even more special and impactful show. Quote, I hired a creative director who works with the Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square to make it an even more beautiful, impactful show, end quote, Baker said. The show tells a Christmas story from the perspective of a shepherd narrator, played by Wright, with musical numbers interspersed with his commentary. Sharp is the featured soloist, and the performance will also include Irish dancers and local choirs. 
Baker expressed her excitement about the upcoming tour, which will include nearly double the number of performances compared to last year, with shows scheduled in 20 venues across the country over the next month. Quote, I really felt strongly that I wanted to take our show to people throughout the country and even into Canada, she said. And with that wonderful performance that will be happening over there in eastern Idaho, might want to have some food after it over there at the Teton Sourdough Co. Carrying on the Legacy. This comes by East Idaho News by Andrea Olson. A beloved Rexburg restaurant, Soup for You, has reopened under a new ownership as the Teton Sourdough Company. While the name has changed, the new owners are committed to carrying on the legacy of delicious food and warm hospitality established by the previous owner, Justin Leroy Wadsworth. Greg Jensen and his wife, Heather, took over the restaurant after Justin's passing, drawn to the passion and dedication he poured into his craft. They made some changes, including updating the interior and expanding the menu to include sourdough bread and pastries. But they've also made sure to preserve the things that made soup for you so special, including popular soups and a welcoming atmosphere. They've even kept the restaurant's social media page alive as a tribute to Justin. The Teton Sourdough Company has been warmly welcomed by the community, with customers quickly falling in love with the new menu offerings. The restaurant is currently open for lunch Tuesday through Friday, with plans to expand to breakfast and Saturdays in the future. But speaking of cooking things and coming back to the Treasure Valley, veteran Craig Smith's culinary venture, Idaho Spice Company, this comes by the Boise Dev by Ann Daly, Craig Smith, a veteran who served in the U.S. Army for 10 years and worked at the Boise Veterans Administration for another decade, has found a new passion after retirement, cooking. In 2019, Smith launched the Idaho Spice Company, a venture that quickly gained recognition when Smith was invited to participate in the Season 10 of the Great Food Truck Race on the Food Network. His team secured a commendable fourth place out of nine teams. But coming back to Idaho, the Idaho Spice Company offers a wide variety of seasoning products, including over 30 different kinds of blends, rubs, teas, individual spices, and herbs. Customers can even create their own blends. The company also offers a variety of mixes for cornbreads, brownies, pancakes, and biscuits. Smith's goal is to make Idaho Spice Company a go-to place for hard-to-find ingredients in the Treasure Valley. In a nod to their Idaho roots, many of the company's seasonings are named after Idaho counties, such as Adams County El Diablo Salt, Canyon County Seasonal Salt, and Boise County Mustard Salt. The latter, Smith explains, is named after Boise County because Idaho City was a mining town and the salt looks like a gold dust. For all those cooks out there that are just dying to go, the Idaho Spice Company's new store opened on November 17th from 5 to 7 p.m. on the second floor of Oaks Brothers Marketplace in Caldwell's Indian Creek Plaza. The products are also available online. And coming back to the topic that we teased throughout the whole episode and seems to be the whole theme of it, housing prices in Ada County flatten. This comes from a Boise Dev by Donde. For those looking for a house in Boise, rejoice a little. The Boise area real estate market is transitioning into the typical quieter winter season. In October, the median price for a home sold at $539,990 in Ada County and $400,000 in Canyon County, marking a slight increase from September for both counties compared to last year. The median price is 3.8% lower in Ada and 8% lower in Canyon. 
This data provided by Intermountain Multiple Listing Service represents the midpoint of home sales with half of homes selling for more and half for less. The pricing data also includes commissions that home sellers pay to real estate agents, representing both the seller and the buyer. According to recent polls by real estate consultancy Fast Expert, the average commission in Idaho is 5.69%, slightly higher than the national average of 5.57%. This translates to $35,725 in commissions for the medium home sale in Ada County last month and $22,760 in Canyon County. Despite the rising interest rates, which have increased from just under 3% two years ago to nearly 8% this summer, the national average interest rate dropped from 7.86% to 7.61% last week. This decrease, the largest in over a year, led to a 2.5% increase in nationwide mortgage application volume. This trend could potentially boost home sales in the Boise market. And again on the legal side of things, a federal judge sidelines abortion trafficking law during lawsuit. This comes from KTVB7 by Associated Press. A federal judge has temporarily halted the enforcement of Idaho's abortion trafficking law while its constitutionality is being challenged in court. U.S. District Magistrate Deborah K. Grasham, in her ruling, emphasized that the lawsuit is not solely about the right to an abortion, but also concerns fundamental rights of freedom of speech, expression, due process, and parental rights. The law, enacted in May, bans abortion in all states of pregnancy in Idaho and aims to prevent minors from obtaining abortions in states where the procedure is legal without their parents' permission. It stipulates that anyone who assists a minor who isn't their own child in arranging an abortion out of state can be charged with a felony. However, they can later defend themselves in court by proving that the minor had parental permission for the trip. The law has been dubbed an abortion trafficking ban by its supporters, while opponents argue that it unconstitutionally restricts interstate travel and free speech rights. Two advocacy groups and an attorney who works with sexual assault victims filed a lawsuit against the state and Idaho Attorney General Raul Labrador over the law earlier this year. They argue that the law is so vague that it's unclear what conduct would be considered illegal or legal and that it infringes on the First Amendment right of free expression and the Fourth Amendment right to travel between states. While Grasham dismissed the claim regarding the right to travel within the state, she allowed the other three claims to proceed. She noted that the plaintiff's intended assistance to minors essentially expresses their core beliefs. Grasham stated that the state cannot craft a statute that stifles the speech and expressive activities of a particular viewpoint under the guise of parental rights. Now that brings us to the end of the episode here. Thank you for listening to the entire podcast. I sincerely hope you found it enjoyable and valuable. If we missed any important points or provided incorrect information, please feel free to reach out to me via email at localyokelidaho2022 at gmail.com or on Twitter by tweeting me at localyokelidaho. With the small team we have, we're not able to cover everything, but we do our best to cover the most interesting and important stories. Thank you for your continued support and assistance. That's all for now. And I wish you a fantastic rest of your week. Godspeed. Thank you.